0: The National Archives podcast series, Medieval Warfare: Sources and Approaches, presented by James Ross and Adrian Jobson. And good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming. Our talk today is divided into two segments. I will be looking at medieval warfare between the Norman Conquest and the eve of the Hundred Years' War. Then I'll pass across to my colleague James Ross, who will then spend the rest of the, the talk looking at warfare after the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War in 1337. When people think of medieval warfare, the first image they conjure up is of a knight in shining armour mounted on his steed, his surcoat and banner emblazoned with his heraldic arms. Contemporary depictions such as the one of the 14th century knight, Sir Geoffrey Luttrell, you can see here, receiving his helmet, lance and shield from his wife and son-in-law capture this stereotype perfectly. But what was medieval warfare like in reality? The history of the medieval army is very different from that of the more modern military forces there was no permanent or standing army, nor were there any regiments. Pitch battles were in fact relatively rare, and famous engagements such as Falkirk and Bannockburn were the exception rather than the norm. Instead, medieval warfare was a mixture of two different strategies. The first of these involved lightning-armed raids, or chevauches, which were intended to destroy an enemy's economic and military strength, while avoiding any defender's strongholds. Raids also provided the troops with an opportunity to make a quick profit. Raiding was especially a feature of warfare in Scotland, Wales and Ireland, where the native rulers normally lacked the strength to conduct a more substantial military campaign. Siege warfare was a second key feature of military campaigning. Richard I, for example, fought in no more than two or three battles in his entire career, but was constantly involved in siege warfare. Indeed, he died from an arrow wound received during the Siege of Chalou in 1199. Amongst the an nobility and the knightly elite, casualties were generally low, thus when the French commander, the Comte de la Perche, died during the Battle of Lincoln in 1217, both sides reacted with an outpouring of grief. A nobleman or knight would have expected to be been ransomed rather than killed, the sum owed being set at a level that would not have bankrupted him. Amongst the ordinary rank and file, however, casualties were substantially higher. Following the success of the Norman conquest of England, the Normans looked westwards to Wales to expand their dominions. Between 1067 and 1090, they had established March Lordships, essentially semi-independent fiefdoms in the border regions. Over the next 150 years or so, there was intermittent but generally low-intensity warfare amongst the border regions and South Wales. Llywelyn the Great successfully expelled the English from North Wales in 1213. Several attempts were then made by the English to recover this lost territory before he died in 1240. Flewynap Griffith's ongoing refusal to swear fealty to Edward I led to the outbreak of war in 1277. Edward himself raised a massive army and invaded North Wales. Having been encircled and finding his food supplies cut off, Flewynap had little option but to, to sue for peace. Tensions brought over again in 1282, and in March of that year, Dafydd, Flewynap's younger brother, attacked Roger Clifford's castle at Howarddon. Edward immediately raised an army and invaded Gwynedd. Flewellyn was initially successful in his defence, but was killed at on Bridge by a common soldier called Stephen of Frankton. Despite a attempt—sorry, oh a Welsh attempt to sue for peace, Edward continued to press home his advantage, and the last Welsh garrison surrendered at Castel Ilbert in April 1283. In 1294-5, the Welsh, under the leadership of Madog at Flewellyn, rose in rebellion, but it was short-lived. Madog himself was imprisoned for the rest of his life, while most of his fellow leaders were executed for treason. Before the Scottish Wars of Independence, relations between England and Scotland regularly alternated between peaceful coexistence and open conflict. Often this was in direct response to political crises within England. In 1068 Northumbria rebelled against the Norman invaders with support from Malcolm III of Scotland. After successfully crushing the rebellion, William the Conqueror in 1072 led an army north into Scotland. Malcolm capitulated and acknowledged William's overlordship. When Stephen was crowned King of England in 1135, David I of Scotland sided with the rival claimant, Empress Matilda. Offering military aid, he invaded England in support of her claim. On the 22nd of August 1138, however, an English army defeated them and his forces at the Battle of the Standard. War broke out again during the reign of William the Lion, when he joined Henry, the young king, Henry II's son, in rebellion. Leading an invasion force, he was captured at the Battle of Anik in July 1174. William's heir, Alexander II, similarly intervened during the rebellion against St. John's rule in 1215. Now, um, going forward about 70 years, after the death of Margaret, the maid of Norway, in 1290, relations between Edward I and the Scots rapidly deteriorated. Between 1296 and 1324, England and Scotland were almost constantly at war. Campaigns consisting of lightning raids and sieges were the norm, interspersed with occasional but significant battles such as Falkirk and Bannockburn, which changed the fortunes of the protagonists. After short-lived peace, however, the Second Scottish War of Independence was fought between 1332 and 1357. And one of the major uh, events was a Hallad-in-Hell in 1333 when the King of Scotland was captured by Edward III. Turning to Ireland, In 1167, an Anglo-Norman knight named Richard Fitzgodbert de Roche landed in Ireland. But the English involvement in Ireland really dates from 1169, when a group of barons led by Richard de Clare landed at Waterford at the invitation of Dermot MacMurrah, the King of Leinster, to help him recover his throne. Accompanying Clare were 200 knights and a 1,000 other troops, while Robert Fitzstephen brought a further 30 knights, 60 men-at-arms, and 300-foot archers. After restoring Dermot to the throne, Clare married his daughter. Fearing the establishment of a rival Anglo-Norman kingdom in Ireland, Henry II landed at Waterford himself in October 1171, with an army which included 5,000 knights. Having successfully asserted his authority, Henry then subsequently granted Ireland to his younger son, John, the future King John. In 1174, some of the native Irish rulers rose in rebellion, but an agreement was reached. In 1175, of Rory O'Connor, the High King of Ireland, its terms being recorded in the Treaty of Windsor. Within two years, however, the treaty was in tatters as both sides were unable to control their supporters. Limerick and Cork were quickly conquered by the Anglo-Normans, while John de Courcy was equally successful in subduing Ulster. Over the next 150 years, there was low-intensity warfare between the Anglo-Normans and the native Irish. In 1315, Robert Bruce's brother Edward led a Scottish invasion of Ulster. Designed to open up a second front against the English, the invasion was initially successful. But on the 24th of October, 1318, John de Birmingham defeated Edward Bruce de Focart near Dundalk and the Scottish intervention in Ireland was ended. And turning finally to France, between the Norman Conquest, which began with the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War in 1337, England was frequently at war with the French in defence of its continental territories, including Normandy and Gascony. In 1106, Henry I defeated his older brother, Robert Curtos, at Tanspere in Normandy, thereby successfully reuniting England and Normandy under a single ruler. After the Angevins, starting with Henry II, gained the English throne in 1154, the intense rivalry with the French Capetian monarchy led to a military conflict. Sieges were common, while pitched battles were relatively few in number. After John's accession in 1199, his conduct forced many of his Norman subjects into rebellion. Philip II of France intervened, and by the end of June 1204, English rule over Normandy, Maine, and Anjou had been extinguished. So over the next 40 years, England's rulers attempted to recover these lost lands, but they met with, met with relatively little success. Part two succumbed to the Capetians in 1225, while in 1242-3, Henry III conducted his final unsuccessful attempt at recovering those lands. This was followed by a period of Comparative peace, but hostilities resumed in 1294 over French claims to a right of sovereignty in Gascony. The war itself became a military stalemate, and a truce was eventually agreed in 1298. Political tensions between the French and the English brought over again in 1324 in a dispute concerning Saint-Sardot in the strategic border county of Two years of warfare ensued, during which Agenay had been lost to the French before a temporary peace was brokered. Now, turning to the actual logistics and the actual mechanics behind warfare of the period. We have already seen that there was no standing army. Soldiers were usually raised, especially before the 14th century, via the use of the feudal summons. Vassals held land from their lord in return for the performance of certain obligations, including military service. Those who held directly of the king were obliged to undertake 40 days of unpaid military service per year. By the 1280s, however, this type of service had become an anachronism, and was often ridiculous. Hugo Fitzhair, for example, was obliged to serve with a bow and arrow. In 1299, he joined Edward's army in Scotland, but as soon as he saw the enemy, he duly fired his one arrow and immediately headed homewards. Recognising the difficulties, the Crown also altered the writ of summons to also ask the recipient to provide as many men-at-arms as they felt they could provide. It also reduced the quotas that were expected, from a theoretical 5,000 knights in the 12th century to just 228 knights and 294 sergeants who served in the Welsh War of 1277. The document we can see on the screen is a typical example of a, typical example of a feudal summons. Dated 1322-3, it lists those who were summoned to join the army must at the Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which was preparing to go northward once again to fight Robert the Bruce. The Crown, therefore, increasingly relied upon mercenaries to make up its shortfall in manpower. <laughs> Although their loyalty not be guaranteed, the use of mercenaries did have its advantages. Unlike those who served in response to a feudal summons, mercenaries could serve all year round. They offered a higher degree of military experience and provided an army with greater flexibility. There are numerous documents relating to mercenaries in the public records, and here we can see a bond granted to Ellis Ombla of Burgess of Blay and Gascony. It's dated 26th Um, year of Edward I's reign, and it's for 35 marks that had been ready paid to various mercenaries in the town's garrison. Warfare is, and was, an expensive business, and placed immense strains on the Crown's finances. In 1205, for example, King John spent more than £18,666 on defending Poitou, while Edward I's conquest of Wales in 1282-3 cost more than £120,000. Costs continued to rise, but the Crown was, for much of the 13th century, unable to find a reliable source of revenue to offset this burden. With an increase, income based mainly upon irregular sums supplied from feudal incidents, the King could only seek extra financial help in times of emergency. Now, as we've already seen, tenants-in-chief owed the Crown military service. Increasingly, however, the Crown was happy to accept payments in lieu, known as scootage, the is being used to hire mercenaries. There are many records related to scutage payments in the National Archives. And here, you can see a typical example. It, dates, it records the scutage payments owed for the Welsh army of 1223. During the 13th century, however, the Crown increasingly found that its traditional sources of revenue were insufficient to fund its military commitments. Subsidies were one avenue, but problematic for the Crown as any grant as the consent of the laity and the clergy was required. Under Edward I, loans became a common way for the Crown to lo- raise sums. Italian banking families advanced vast sums and, by 1294, Edward owned, owed £392,000 a loan to the Ricardi of Lucca. Before its expulsion in 1290, the Jewish community had literally been bankrupted by the Crown's assessing demands for cash. Edward's reign also saw the expansion of customs payable on exported goods, the most infamous being the Meltoat, a tax um, imposed on wool exports. All this money was raised and spent on his campaigns. One significant area of military expenditure was on wages. There are, consequently, numerous documents in the archives detailing these payments. This example on, you can see on the screen is typical of their form layout. It dates from twelve eighty four to six and is a counter role recording the wages paid to soldiers serving in the Welsh army. In his treatise at the Art of War, the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu noted that the line between disorder and order lies in logistics, a sentiment that was just as important to military leaders in the Middle Ages as it was to the generals of the ancient kingdom of Chinese Kingdom of Wu. Supporting medieval frontline forces was an army of craftsmen and workmen. They built rough roads for the use of the army, cut down trees for its fires, made braziers for its siege works, as well as constructing temporary bridges across rivers. The document that you can currently see is a role detailing the stipends paid to carpenters and other workmen during the Welsh War of 1277. This particular membrane, as you can see from the highlighted word, relates to Rudland in Flintshire. And right at the bottom you can see the final sum of wages, and the cost of the workmen, right at the the bottom figure. The Crown also went to great lengths to ensure that its military forces in Wales, Scotland and Gascony were fully supplied with the necessary equipment. Arms and armour, bows and arrows, and siege engines all had to be delivered wherever they were needed, and there are many documents in our collection that provide insight on how this was actually achieved. Horses were a key military resource. Destriers were the large war horses. Used in battle by knights and were often extremely expensive. In 1297, for example, Edward I paid £66, 13 shillings and fourpence for just one animal. Horses were also employed in a logistical role, being used to transport vital stores to the front line. Substantial sums were spent by the Crown on acquiring these animals, and details of his expenditure is once again found in the public records. Now, the particular example you can see dates from 1302 to 3. And provides a valuation for horses that were to be used by Edward's army in Scotland. Now, the first of these highlighted items you can see states Sir John Bardolf, knight, for the, for the same, i.e., horses, has one horse. And the valuation is 25 marks, which is roughly 16 pounds, 16 shillings, and eight which also puts into context Edward's spending on that one horse for himself. Napoleon Bonaparte once famously declared that an army march on the stomach, and this tenet can be equally applied to any army of the Middle Ages. Bread was a staple diet of the medieval soldier, but was often supplemented by oatmeal and pottage. Fresh or salted meat and dried or salted fish were also requirements. Local water supplies could not be relied upon, so sizable quantities of ale and wine were necessary. Food was requisitioned or purchased from both the royal domain and private estates. Although documents recording both the foodstuffs and their transportation survive for some of the earlier military campaigns, it is really from Edward I's reign again that they do so in large numbers. Now here we can see an example of a receipt that was issued by Sir Thomas de Warburton, the sheriff of Hampshire, to Sir John de Kirkby. Dated the 13th of January, 1304, it concerns various quantities of wheat, barley, oats, beans and peas, which were being requisitioned from Kirkby's estates in the Isle of Wight, and subsequently shipped to the army encamped at Berwick-on-Tweed, again in preparation for another invasion of Scotland. Living off the land, or to use the correct military expression, foraging, was a normal method used by armies to feed itself, or themselves. If a force moved quickly through enemy territory, then it could normally feed itself without too much difficulty. But if it became bogged down, then starvation became a growing threat as local resources were used up. Unfortunately, the process of foraging is not well documented, as there is no reason to account for these goods, which are simply pillaged from the enemy. Occasionally, however, its impact can be discerned in the public records. After the Scottish defeat at Folkart in 1318, Robert Baggard, petition for compensation for the corn and livestock taken by Edward II's army while I was encamped on his estates in Limerick. Unfortunately, we don't actually know if he got his money back, but um he, said he made a good attempt at trying. Now, castles were at the cutting edge of medieval military technology, mainly defensive in nature. They served many purposes, including acting as administrative centers and military strongpoints. They also provided a useful base for military operations. Castles were expensive to construct, and some idea of the enormous sums spent can be seen in this next document image, which is an account from the Norman pipe Rolls for the building work undertaken at the Norman border fortress of Chateau Gaillard in 11898. Now the text itself reads, well, some of the text actually says, On the works of the fortress of Rocca, and on the castle of Insula, and on the houses of the king in Insula, and on the works of the houses and of the stockades, and for the ploughing of ditches, and on the works of the houses of the ville under Rocca. And on the works for the bridges and parapets and stockades in front of Tony, namely on branches and enclosed, closing with impaling, £1,700, three shillings, payable by the king's writ. And that's just from the highlight am just showing that ditches, houses, and um, braziers. Starting in 1197, Chateau Gaillard took less than three years to build. 6,000 labourers were employed in its construction, and it cost more than twice the annual revenues of Normandy. Costing more than £11,000 in total, this fortification was virtually impregnable and was the most technically advanced of its time. Now, The great 19th century Prussian military strategist Karl von Clausewitz once wrote that if you entrench yourself behind strong fortifications, you compel the enemy to seek a solution elsewhere. Now, This maxim would have been readily understood by Edward I, who constructed a series of castles around the edge of the mountainous principality of Gwynedd. Unparalleled in scale since the days of Imperial Rome, his castle building programme cost more than £100,000. This placed in immense strain upon the revenues of the crown. A vast army of workmen, masons and other craftsmen recruited to build these fortifications. And the National Archives holds many documents recording their efforts. Accounts of building works made by royal officials and overseers frequently survive, noting the sums spent on both materials and wages. Now here we can see a typical example of what these accounts look like. It is a counter roll drawn up by Adam de Wheaton-Hale recording the payments for building work that had been undertaken under his control at Conway Castle between 1285 and 1286. Now the highlighted section I've brought up is just a tiny bit of his account and it states for 320 quarters and six bushes of charcoal for the fabric of the building. So they're using, buying vast amounts of charcoal to burn burn up the wood and um, to free up the stone to, to build the castle. Each of these castles was permanently garrisoned under command of a castellan. Edward's new castle, the latest in technology, but many of the older castles were fast becoming obsolete and often had been allowed to become ruinous. Just how badly they were sometimes maintained can be seen in a certificate found amongst the Chancery Miscellanea. It's dated the 5th of June, 1275, and it notes the ruinous state of Cogarron Castle, where it was taken over by Edward I, first, part of an uncle, William de Valence. Ruins are missing from buildings, there's holes in the walls, and the moat had been allowed to silt up. Edward I. lacked the funds to build in Scotland on the scale they had done in Wales, yet castles garrisoned by the English were a vital element in maintaining a military presence north of the border. Robert the Bruce recognised their strategic importance, but was himself not strong enough to conduct lengthy siege operations. Consequently, he pursued a different strategy, capturing castle after castle by Escalade, which is the use of ladders to scale the walls and surprise attacks. After a castle's capture, Bruce's men deliberately slighted it, so that the English would never again be able to dominate the land by holding the castles. Now, the image you can see on the screen is a list of the garrison and provisions based at Dumfries in November 1301. Again, it's typical of its type. Siege warfare played a vital role in medieval warfare. Siege towers enabled attackers to overlook the defences of a castle or were wheeled up to its walls in preparation for an assault. Great stone-throwing machines such as trebuchets or mangonels were used to create a breach in the castle's walls. The armies could also excavate tunnels underneath the walls themselves. Shored up with timbers, these tunnels were then filled with combustibles and set alight. And usually, the walls above the tunnel would collapse into the tunnel and thereby create a breach. Wherever possible, siege engines were transported by sea, a policy that can be seen in once again in public records. And here we have a receipt issued by William Ploaknet of Berwick for wages received for carrying the King's siege engines to Stirling on his ship, the Luger Board, in 1304. Naval warfare was very different in the Middle Ages. Vessels were small in size and rarely strayed beyond the sight of land. Battles were almost always close in shore or in harbours. Yet ships still played an important role. Medieval English armies could achieve little without them. Ships transported men, food and horses around the coast and across the English Channel. They also defended the coastal ports against French raids and could supply the castles in North Wales. Before John's reign, the crown had only a very small number of vessels in its service. If the crown needed a fleet to fight or to transport its armies across the seas, it would rely upon the services of vessels owned by the St. ports, which owed the service of 57 ships for 15 days' service a year, or the king could commandeer merchant vessels. John was the first king, however, to invest in a fleet of his own. Between 1209 and 1212, he ordered the building of 20 new galleys and 34 other vessels. John also authorised the construction of a new harbour mole at Portsmouth and sheds for storing tackle during the harbour months, during the winter months. We hold a range of records relating to naval matters here at Kew. This example notes the ships based at the ports of Bristol and Drogheda, and their masters, during Henry III's reign. Now, the first highlighted that I've just pulled up at the top of the list is Bristol. And the second one, a bit further down the list, is one ship from Peter Allard. And you've got the rest of the, the ship's captains as you go down the list. We've already seen that battles were the exception rather than the rule of medieval warfare. Here we can see a 19th century recreation of an incident that took place near the beginning of the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. An English knight, Henry de Boone, saw a solitary Scottish knight who'd been scouting out the English positions. Recognising the knight as Robert de Bruce, Boone charged him in full sight of both armies. Unwilling to retreat, Bruce successfully avoided Boone's lance before killing his opponent with one single swipe of his battle axe. Now, raiding was a constant feature of warfare on the borders of, in, of the English dominions with, uh, with Ireland, Wales, Scotland, etc. It's very difficult to defend against, as these raids often, and these raids often had a devastating impact on the local economy. Now, some understanding of the severity of these raids can be seen in this petition from 1334. It requests that a debt of 20 marks for provisions that his monastery had brought from the king be pardoned the Abbot of Holm Coltrane, arguing that his religious house was extremely impoverished because of its estates had been recently devastated by Scottish raiders. And there were several other similar sort of petitions dating from the 1320s, 1330s, uh, uh, alleging the same sort of um, damages. So far, we've mainly looked at the means by which warfare was prosecuted in the two centuries, before the Hundred Years' War. Now, let us turn briefly to the human cost. Casualties were, as we have seen, generally low amongst the noble and knightly elites. Sometimes, however, its members did pay the ultimate price, and Gilbert de Clare was a case in point. He was the Earl of Gloucester and Hereford, aged just 23 years of age in 1314. He was the richest lay person outside the immediate royal family. The last of his line, his ancestors had fought alongside the the conqueror at Hastings. On the 24th of June, 1314, the tired English army arrived at Bannockburn. Clare advised Edward II that his men should be allowed to rest for a day. Edward disagreed and accused him of being afraid of the Scots. Now, Clare was insulted by this slur and got on his horse and merely charged on his own at the Scottish army. Now, he charged forward, was cut down, and killed by Scottish spearmen. After the battle, his lands were then subdivided in between his three surviving sisters as co heiresses. And the document screen is a part of that process as an Inquisition post mortem for the Oxfordshire manor of Caversham. Once both sides had tired of war, or one had gained a sufficient advantage over the other, there was an opportunity to come to a negotiated settlement. Many of the resulting treaties have survived amongst the public records, and the one on, displayed on screen, the 1174 Treaty of Falais, is one such example. After William the Lion of Scotland was captured by Ranulf de Glanville at the Battle of Annick in 1174, he was imprisoned in the normal castle, Norman castle of Falais. Scotland was subsequently occupied by the English army, and William was forced to come to terms with Henry II. And the provisions of this agreement were set out in the treaty named after his place of imprisonment. William swore an oath of fealty to Henry while agreeing to pay the cost of an English army of occupation. Fifteen years later, Richard I. terminated the agreement in return for a single payment of 10,000 silver marks. But perhaps the most significant English treaty in the two centuries after the Norman conquest is, is shown here on screen, the Treaty of Paris of 1259, which happens to be the 750th anniversary this year. After 50 years' of unsuccessful attempts to recover the lands lost by his father in 1204 and faced with domestic unrest at home, Henry III began negotiating with Louis IX of France in an effort to find a suitable resolution. The resulting agreement was ratified by Louis on the 4th of December 1259. Henry agreed to renounce his claims to Normandy, Maine, Anjou and Poitou in return for Louis, renouncing his support of the reformist bounds in England. There was also some financial compensation. But the key provision was a formal acknowledgement by the King of England that Henry would hold his remaining continental possessions as a vassal of the French crown. This treaty was to have far-reaching consequences. Any aggrieved Gascon, who believed that he had not received justice from the Plantagenet administration in Gascony, could now appeal directly to the French Parliament. This gave the French King carte blanche to interfere in the affairs of the Duchy. Although the treaty did initially lead to more than thirty years of peace between the two realms, ultimately led to a series of armed disputes, mainly generated by complaints back to the French Parliament, that culminated in the old break of the Hundred Years' War in 1337.
1: And James. Thank you, Adrian. Um, I'm going to concentrate primarily on um, the relations between England and France. Um, I will also outline um, relations within the British Isles, um, but it's going to be the Hundred Years' War that um, I'm going to focus on. I hope to take various sort of outline various sources and approaches to the records going to look at finance raising armies organization and discipline a little bit about naval warfare um, something about the the physical materials of war so armor and 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 arrows and um, weapons and lastly have a a little bit of an investigation about how you could study individuals through national archives holdings but how about as Adrian's suggested, what perhaps marks the most significant change in English military activity since 1066 was the opening of the misleadingly named one, uh, Hundred Years' War, which ran from 1337 to 1453. This period saw an increase, for, for the English crown at any, at any rate, an increasing focus on the continent and not on warfare in the British Isles. The duration of the war was unprecedented, the finance required was astronomical. And it didn't affect England alone. The Welsh and the Irish, coming from areas wholly or partially under English rule, supplied troops and benefited from English success or suffered from English failure. Scotland was consistently allied with France throughout this period and supplied a lot of troops to French armies. To have a a brief outline of, of England's relations with Scotland, Wales and Ireland during the 14th and 15th centuries... As I've mentioned, other areas of the British Isles became a military and political backwater as far as the English Crown was concerned. Occasional warfare was either an unwelcome distraction to the French War or was occasionally undertaken to remove such distractions in the future, preemptive action. The financial situation was such that the English Crown could not afford to fight prolonged wars on two fronts. So there wasn't prolonged warfare across the border with Scotland much after the 1340s um, until Henry VIII. Um, Engaged in a much more serious warfare in the 1540s. But occasional warfare with Scotland still occurred. King David II of Scotland was captured at, ne- at the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346. Edinburgh was burnt by Richard II in 1385. He has a reputation as a very unmartial king, um, he more, more normally remembered for inventing the pocket handkerchief. But he did actually undertake a number of military actions. Percy forces, um, the, the great northern family of the Percys, avenged a defeat at Otterburn in 1388 by um, defeating the Scots at Homelden Hill in 1402. And warfare along the border in 1481 2 under Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, led to the recapture of Berwick by the English. It's noticeable actually that a number of these, uh, many of these um, campaigns were, were initiated by the Scots and were invasions of England rather than the other way around. And perhaps the most famous example of this is the Scottish invasion of England, which was defeated at Flodden in 1513, where the Scottish king, James IV, was killed. This is a, the image on the screen is a, is a contemporary, though very much idealised version of image of Anglo-Scottish warfare. Um, I suspect the reality was an awful lot grimmer than that. The English were rather less successful in stamping out Owain Glyndŵr's Rebellion in Wales between 1400 and 1415, um, not least as the Welsh refused um, pitch battle, um, and it took an extremely attritional campaign under Henry, Prince of Wales, later Henry V, which finally ground down the rebels. Ireland was also seen as a backwater, with perhaps only Richard II paying the Lordship's serious attention. He, he crossed twice for substantial forces in 1395 and 1399. This is an image of Ewing Linde's, um seal uh, on his 1404 treaty with Charles VI of France. It was the high point of his career when he could negotiate with a foreign state as an independent ruler. But unfortunately, it didn't last. However, as I said, I'm going to concentrate primarily on the Hundred Years' War. I'm going to outline the, the general stages of it because um, it's a relatively complicated story. Adrian's already um, spoken about the uh, Treaty of Paris in 1259 that allowed um, the French King to interfere in the English Duchy of Aquitaine or Gascony. This continued throughout, and in August 1337, Philip VI of France confiscated it, which is the event that marks the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Very shortly afterwards, Edward III of England declared himself King of France. His claim is actually rather more serious and, and, and believable than, than is often given credit. He was, certain, he was the nearest male relative of a previous king of France. He just happened to inherit through the female line. The um, fam- famous French Salic law, which barred inheritance through the female line, um, was created after this event, not beforehand. The war itself was um, a sporadic affair, perhaps as... Uh, as modern warfare, uh, compared with modern warfare, but was um, particularly intense for long periods by medieval standards. The opening phase, certainly from the mid-1340s through to about 1360, saw some of England's most successful military campaigns. In a rare sea battle, a French fleet was defeated at Sloys in 1340. On land, Edward won a stunning victory at Cressy in 1346 and besieged and took Calais in the following year. In 1356, King John of France was captured by the Black Prince, Edward um, Edward III's eldest son, at the Battle of Poitiers. And that's um, a picture of the Black Prince's tomb in Canterbury Cathedral. Very successful commander. He might not have been the easiest king to have worked under had he not predeceased his father. A further full-scale invasion by Edward Edward III in 1359 failed to achieve the outright, outright victory the king sought. This then triggered peace negotiations... And under the resulting Treaty of Bretigny in 1360, Edward renounced his claim to the French throne in return for outright sovereignty over Gascony and Poitou, which would have solved um, the the problems of French interference there. The image on the screen demonstrates the very substantial amounts of France that were under English control under the terms of the Treaty of Bretigny in 1360, particularly in the south. However, the peace only lasted nine years, uh, and in 1369 the French invaded Gascony. Over the subsequent years, most of the earlier English gains were lost in rather sporadic and sterile campaigning. In 1414, however, the newly crowned Henry V demanded the restoration of various territories, including Normandy and Anjou. When, When the French inevitably refused, Henry invaded Normandy. And on the 25th of October 1415, his outnumbered army inflicted a crushing defeat on the French at Agincourt. He used this victory and his subsequent um, conquest of Normandy to seek a diplomatic solution. And in 1420, the Treaty of Troyes provided for the marriage of Henry to Catherine, daughter of Charles VI. Their offspring would succeed jointly to both the English and the French thrones. But Henry's early death in 1422 um, caused problems um, in the implementation of this. Although the territorial inheritance he left his English son was perhaps as big as it could have been, Uh, as it had ever been, its reality was a bit different. Nonetheless, successful campaigning did continue some period, and you can see the um, amount of France again under English and um, Burgundian control. However, Henry's death in 1422 left his son, um, Henry VI, aged only nine months, and although he technically acceded to both the English and French thrones, it marked a change. Fighting continued, and under the leadership of Joan of Arc, between 1429 and 1431, the forces of Charles VII of France began recovering the territories that had been lost to Henry V and his Burgundian allies. Maine surrendered in 1448, while the last English garrison in Normandy capitulated in August 1450. And in the south, on the 17th of July 1453, the French won a decisive victory over the English at Castile, where the English commander charged an artillery emplacement and died. Gascony quickly surrendered, leaving only Calais under English control. Later, sporadic invasions of France, for instance, 1475, 1492, and Henry VIII's first campaign of 1513, achieved little. Moving then to ways of approaching the the huge collection of military documents that the National Archives holds. I'm gonna first look at finance. Um, As a Frenchman, Rabelais, in 1553 said, the strength of a war waged without monetary reserves is as fleeting as a breath. Money, money is the sinew of war, and it's certainly crucial for the English crown. Expenditure on warfare after the start of the Hundred Years' War quickly became astronomical. For example, the wages of the army alone um, between 1346 and 1347, which was the Cressy Campaign and the Siege of Calais, consumed the huge sum of £127,000. Putting that into context... The income of the Crown, normal income of the Crown, was about £47,000 a year. The shortfall could be partially made up by parliamentary taxation, which in this year raised about £50,000, but nonetheless, in one year, the Crown was forced to borrow £58,000, which is more than its um, normal annual income. This document is where some of these figures I've just quoted have come from. It's an account of the keeper of the wardrobe of the household who's the official um, with responsibility for finance in wartime. It's in the series of his enrolled accounts in E361. One of the sentences at the end simply states that the wages of diverse men-at-arms, light horsemen, mounted and foot archers and mariners in the King's service in his war, in the parts of Normandy, France and before Calais, in the aforesaid time, came to £127,201, two shillings, nine pence and a single halfpenny. But that is one of the biggest single figures I've ever seen on a medieval document, so it's it, you can see the scale of it. Parliamentary taxation was one of the main ways in which the English crown attempted to finance the war. The famous fifteenth and tenth, and that's an assessment of one fifteenth of the laity's uh, wealth and one tenth of the clergy's wealth, was standardised in thirteen thirty four, and on this basis grants of taxation were made in Parliament. Parliamentary records are in the series C65, and the collection of the taxation can be traced through the National Archives series E179. Unusually, both of those have very good finding aids. There's a good taxation database um, on our website for E179, and there are uh, CD-ROM editions of parliamentary papers um, for the medieval period in um, via opera on C6, um, for C65. For much of the period, the Crown was just about able to finance the war, but by the 1440s, the finances of the English Crown collapsed. Parliament alleged that in 1450, the Crown's debts were £372,000, but its income was just £36,000 a year. Maybe one of the few periods of history where the state finances were worse than they are now. There are accounts of virtually every aspect of the war, and some of these I'll come back to but there are accounts for ordnance or artillery, the Navy, provisioning, garrison, retinues, ransoms, etc. Adrian's shown it for the early period, and this certainly continues for the 14th and 15th centuries. They are mainly in the National Archives series E-101, which are various accounts of the Exchequer. These are very brief descriptions on the online catalogue, but can be searched there, and there is a paper version as well. There are also uh, accounts for prominent private individuals, Um, both elsewhere and at the National Archives. And those uh, at Kew are perhaps most notably those of Edward the Black Prince and his brother John of Gaunt, who are both the sons of Edward III and two of the most prominent 14th century commanders. And um, certainly Edward the Black Prince's register I will come back to. My second possible way of approaching the sources we have here is to do with recruiting armies. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the rise of the indenture system, which has been described as the most important administrative development in the English army in the later Middle Ages, and perhaps was just as crucial as the famous longbowman in the English successes in the Hundred Years' War. An indenture was made between the king and a captain, or between a captain and a subcontractor, and was a binding agreement regarding the size and composition of the retinue to be brought and specified wages, terms and conditions, and divisions of spoil. Now, this seems very straightforward, but it hadn't been the case previously. And instead of um, unwieldy, short-term and unprofessional hosts raised by the feudal levy, or professional but expensive uh, mercenary forces whose loyalty couldn't be guaranteed, the indenture system created um, groups of high-quality troops whose terms and conditions were set out and who became increasingly professional, especially in the 15th century. So the English armies, though rather small than the French, tended to be of better quality. And indeed the French successes were partly due to them beginning to copy the English system. To take a specific example, this is an indenture for Richard de Vere, Earl of Oxford, for the Agincourt campaign in 1415, and it's in the series E101. In it, the Earl agrees to supply for the king... 40 men-at-arms and 100 mounted archers for the service of a year. The rates of pay are specified. Each man-at-arms is um, paid 40 marks, It's about £26 a year. Each archer is paid five marks, or about £3 a year. The men-at-arms are of a higher social status and their equipment costs more, so they're they're basically paid more. Once this had been agreed, the Earl then went and subcontracted with some of his leading men the, uh, here's an example of the Earl's subcontracting. You can see um, the list of the men who have agreed to serve with him. And this particular example, someone called Thomas Billingborough, agrees to bring a, a himself, an archer, three horses, and a page to look after his domestic arrangements. Once, this, once the force had, had gathered, it would then be mustered at a specific place and time and inspected This particular force was mustered um, at somewhere called Wallops Forth in Hampshire and was inspected on the 6th of July 1415 by Lord Harrington and Sir John Rothenhale. So this is quite a professional, organised way of of raising an army and it's these men who go on and fight at Agincourt in a far more disciplined manner than the French and is obviously one major reason for their success. The English armies also tended to be more organised and disciplined partly helped by the fact they were smaller, but partly helped by the regular issue of ordinances or or specific orders for the army on most campaigns. The earliest surviving one is from Richard II's Scottish campaign in 1385, but they were frequently reissued. To take an example, these images on the screen are from ordinances issued by Henry VII when he invaded France in 1492. They're actually printed, which probably indicates they were issued for propaganda purposes as well. But ordinance covered covered a range of subjects. The one on the left indicates that no man should be so hardy as to irreverently to touch either the holy sacrament of God's body or the body of the vessel in which the same is contained. So basically respect the church. Under pain of being drawn and hanged. So not probably one to to break. On the hand, the example on the right is far more practical. It states that... The king straightly chargeth chargeth and commandeth that if it happened that his host tarry by the space of three days in any one place, be it at siege or otherwise, then every man should keep clean his lodging, not suffering any carrion nor filth or any other unwholesome or infecting air or smell to be in or near his lodging, but forthwith to bury the same deep in the earth. Um, upon pain of being punished after the discretion of the marshal. Very practical example because failure to keep the camps clean led to disease and, and death, so it's, it's a very practical thing. These two examples are in um, the series E163, but there are others um, in various archives as well as the National Archives. A further approach for a potential avenue for study would be naval warfare. Adrian's already touched on this. Um, the English monarch usually owned several ships, Henry V being particularly interested, indeed owned as many as 39 ships in 1418. But in times of war, both English and French kings called upon the merchant vessels of their subjects and manned them, in addition to their crews, with archers and men at arms. The ships were converted for war by building forecastles and crow's nests, fortifications from which archers directed their fire onto enemy vessels. And this contemporary illustration of naval warfare demonstrates the fact that there are a lot of fortifications with archers shooting, um, the four castles at the top of the screen, but the bulk of the warfare was simply by men-at-arms boarding other ships. It was actually quite like fighting on land, except with the additional possibility of ending up in the sea at the end of it. It's possible to see those who served at sea, and to some extent in what capacity. There are documents listing those serving at sea in the King's service in 1371-2, to And they're giving specific headings. Men-at-arms, so heavily armed soldiers. Armed men, probably poorer men just armed with blunt or possibly sharp instruments. Archers and mariners. And as I say, this example, you can see the subheadings up there of those who were serving in the Navy at that time. It's also possible to some extent to trace operations, particularly through accounts. This particular account by a keeper of the Navy for 1419-22 to records the expenditure of £140 uh, in 1416, so it's a couple of years beforehand, on the expenses and wages of 36 mariners in a particular ship called the Little John, I think someone had been reading their Robin Hood, which along with a much bigger ship called the Holy Ghost, was, uh, was undertaking operations for the safekeeping of the River Seine in Normandy, which was point. Uh, there's a big naval battle shortly afterwards, so it's preliminary operations there. A further approach is to look perhaps at some of the physical materials, or at least the, the payments for them. There are accounts covering expenditure on everything, from the king's armour to hundreds of thousands of arrows purchased for English longbowmen. This particular account shows expenditure on armour for King Edward III himself, particular pieces being replaced, and these are, these are relatively common. These sort of things can normally be found in the series E101. However, this is a different example, and this is from the Black Prince's Register. As an independent commander, he paid for a lot of the equipment for himself and then was reimbursed. One of these entries is for the purchase of 24,000 arrows for one of his expeditions. But this really wasn't a terribly excessive number. Nearly half a million arrows were purchased by the Crown in 1421. And if I can just play with a few figures... 5,000 English longbowmen firing at the rate of uh, one arrow every six seconds, which is about the right firing rate, would fire 60,000 arrows in a single minute. Now, that's an arrow storm, and that's why the English armies were very successful against French cavalry. (laughs) That would be 3.6 million arrows an hour, but I don't think anyone could have fired that quickly. (laughs) Or for that long, perhaps. The last approach, and perhaps one of the most fruitful, is to look at particular individuals... And the records for the Hundred Years' War allow researchers for the first time to trace the military career of individuals below the ranks of the nobility and the knightly elite. You can still do precisely that. Another example from the Black Princess Register in E36. This shows the, a grant by the Black Prince to Sir Roger de Coatesford in consideration of his good service, particularly at the Battle of Poitiers when he was effectively the Prince's bodyguard. And he's granted 40 marks a year from the Prince's Honour of Wallingford. The Black Prince was um, a notoriously generous employer. And this is a, uh, that's a big grant. However, it's also possible to look at the least important people in the English armies, socially important. This is a list of archers who were employed at the garrison of Harfleur in 1415, which Henry V captured just before marching on. These men are left behind. It's possible to get a sense of the human element of the conflict, even from the records of central government. This is a petition by Piers of Lanfranc, who was a Gascon, who claims to have served the English armies for 14 years without pay. He'd been imprisoned four times, the last time for a year and a half, and he'd come into England to beg the king to help pay some of his ransom. It's very much a, a hard luck story. From the other side, again from the Black Prince's Register, this is a statement in 1360 by Charles, Count of Damartin, regarding the competing claims to who actually captured him at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356. At least three men claimed that they'd captured him, and this matters an awful lot. The, the Count's ransom was £3,000, and whoever captured him had a third share, so that's really quite a lot of money, and it makes a big difference to the individuals in question. But it's a detailed um, statement of, of precisely what happened, and the Count seems to have just stood around being repeatedly captured without defending himself. Recently completed project by the Universities of Reading and Southampton has created a database of all known English and Welsh soldiers who fought in the Hundred Years' War. It's based largely on National Archive muster rolls in E 101, treaty rolls, and supplementary patent rolls in C 76 and C 67 and actually has nearly a quarter of a million entries. It's an invaluable tool for for researching an individual's career. It doesn't tell you under what terms they're serving or rates of pay and things like that, but it is possible to to find virtually everyone who is known to have served. That can be accessed at www.medievalsoldier.org and, as I say, it's a very useful new database for the prosopographical approach.
0: This event was recorded live on the twentieth of August, two thousand and nine, at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk/forward/slash/podcasts.